0: Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. From their childhood dreams to the most pivotal moments of their careers, the stories of dermatology's most influential leaders will be revealed through a new series of Dialogues in Dermatology podcasts, Titans of Dermatology. Join us as we explore the personal characteristics, emotions, and messages from dermatologists who have made indelible impacts on the field. To help us enhance future Titans of Dermatology episodes, please visit the description section of this podcast to access a short survey. We greatly appreciate your feedback.
1: Hello, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Harrison Wynn, and I'm a dermatology resident from the Emory University School of Medicine. I'm joined today by Dr. Sufi Chen, who is professor and chair of dermatology at Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Chen is an internationally recognized expert in cutaneous melanoma and pigmented lesions, as well as teledermatology. Prior to being named chair at Duke, Dr. Chen was vice chair and professor of dermatology at my institution, Emory University, where she served as director of the Emory Dermatology Center for Outcomes Research and Safety, Director of the Pigmented Lesion Clinic and Director of Teledermatology for the Regional Telehealth Service of the VA Southeast Network. She was one of the first formally trained health services researchers in dermatology, has been continuously funded by the VA, NIH, and numerous foundations, and currently serves on the Board of Directors for the Society of Investigative Dermatology. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, Dr. Chen.
2: Thank you. My pleasure.
1: Can you start off by first telling us about your childhood and upbringing? What were you like as a child, Dr. Chen?
2: So I was probably a very sheltered child. We moved around a lot. We were not in the military, but we moved around as if we were in the military. My father as a mathematician and in the pursuit of tenure, it took us to various different places. As a child of parents that emigrated from Asia, academics were incredibly important to them. And so that was something that they emphasized a lot. And as new immigrants to the United States, they didn't always understand the culture, the American culture. And so it was interesting as a a first generation to navigate that
1: So you identify in some ways as a third culture kid, having both the background of immigrants from Asia as well as growing up in the U.S. How did that really kind of shape you early on?
2: I think it gave me an appreciation for different cultures and really trying to broker a middle ground with that. Moving around a lot, it also, I think, forced me from a very early age to develop people skills. You know, you don't really want to be the the outsider all the time. And so I still remember a conversation with my father, and I think I was in middle school, and he was just prepping me, okay, today, you're going to talk to Diane, and you're going to compliment her clothes and giving me like real granular tips on how to become friends with my peers. And so so those things definitely have stayed with me, the, the people skill. But bridging sort of, my parents had no idea what prom was. I think they saw Animal House or something like that. And so they, they actually didn't let me go to prom. And so those kinds of things, you know, make me sympathetic to the fact that there are cultural differences within populations in our own country. And so just to be really sensitive to that.
1: Sure, sure. And growing up, what were your dreams?
2: So that's interesting. I, in second grade, really wanted to be a second grade teacher because I loved my second grade teacher. And while my parents were strong proponents of educators, they didn't think that that is what I should aspire to be. I took a drafting class in middle school and really loved the precision of drafting. So I thought I wanted to become an architect. But again, that wasn't stable and concrete enough for my parents, (laughs) so they dissuaded me from that. And growing up, they told me that I could be three things in life. Three things would appeal to their sensibilities. One was either a doctor, a scientist, or a professor. And as it turns out, I am actually all three, but not without some fighting. So when I went to college, actually, I wasn't so sure I really wanted to be a doctor. I thought that was just pre-programming from my parents. So I decided not to do pre-med. And this is a really boneheaded way to get into medicine. But I was an electrical engineer as my major and thought, well, my uncle was an engineer and he had a satisfying career. So maybe I would try to do it that way. But eventually came around, you know, just really loved interacting with people. And so the the engineering route really wasn't going to be the one for me. You
1: you went to college at MIT. And was there a a time at MIT that you can point to that you decided, okay, this is time. Yeah, I'm I'm going to pursue medicine after all.
2: Yeah, my math skills just were not equal to those that eventually pursued engineering as a career. I mean, I'm pretty good at math, but that was another level. And so when I started to struggle there and um, not to be able to do it all in my head, like it seemed like my peers were able to do and all the engineering classes, you know, and I, I really did start missing sort of the life sciences piece of it. That was probably well into my sophomore year, end of sophomore year. So it was too late to back out at that point. Um, so I just finished it, but started instead of taking electives for fun, I took my pre-med classes. So that's why I said it was boneheaded because I didn't take very many fun classes, if at all any.
1: <laughs> and you, after making the decision to go to medical school, you ended up settling on, on Johns Hopkins. Tell us about What were you like as a medical student? How did you kind of go through medical school and think about the next career path for you?
2: Yeah, so I must say that even though I wasn't pre-med from the get-go, that engineering background has shaped how I approached medicine. So coming into it, initially it hurt quite honestly. My, my mind wasn't trained to memorize a ton. And so in your first few classes, all those biochemistry pathways and whatnot, it's all rote memorization. So I had a really hard time with that. My mind was trained to be much more analytical, you know, deriving equations and whatnot. And so that was definitely a, a shift in the way to learn in medical school. But, you know, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician you know, that's a very, I think, common thought of most medical students, because that's really the only doctor they had been involved with. So that was what I thought I was going to do. But then when I did PEDS, I really didn't like how the kids saw me as the bad guy and the crying and that just I didn't like that and then as part of I'm um, thinking that I was going to be a pediatrician you know I did a dermatology rotations I figured I'd see a lot of skin and that really resonated with me I really enjoyed that rotation and the usual cliche of it being visual and all that stuff really appealed to me too so that's how a, I eventually, I had to decide, did I want to be a specialist and give up knowing a huge broad set of knowledge, but becoming an expert at one specific thing, or did I want to be a generalist and pursue that pediatric route? And It it was not an easy decision, but eventually I decided that I wanted to be an expert at something.
1: And so you settled in on dermatology and applied to residency. Did you know where you wanted to go in your career at that point?
2: I knew that I wanted to do research actually at that point. I am just wired to ask questions. In fact, in medical school, one of my teaching assistants for neurology finally was just so exasperated with me. She's just like, Sue, you're just like Barbara Walters. Like, stop asking questions. So I knew that I wanted to do research. I didn't know what kind of research, though. I had tried a little bit of bench in college and that didn't really sit well with me. It was not tangible enough, the results. And so I knew it probably wasn't that, but I knew that I wanted to do some sort of research coming into residency.
1: And so, of course, you found health services research. How did you get involved in health services research? You're one of the first formally trained health services researcher. How did that even get on your radar?
2: Yeah, so it actually was a clinical event. So we used to admit psoriasis patients to the hospital to get Geckerman therapy, and so this patient with pretty bad psoriasis came in on my watch, and Mary Spraker was my attending, actually, and he came in for his annual Geckerman therapy. He would go into remission after three weeks of the, the tar and the triamcinolone and the wraps and whatnot, but on my watch, his insurance company refused it. They wouldn't pay for the inpatient stay, and they insisted that he take methotrexate instead, and he really didn't want to take a systemic medication, if at all possible, and the whole liver issue and whatnot came up. So I went to the literature to try to advocate on his behalf, either showing that Geckerman was just as cost effective or a quality of life piece. And those are terms that we now easily roll off our tongue, right? But that actually was not vocabulary used in dermatology. But that was the thing that I was looking for, and I couldn't find it in the literature. And so I realized that this was a gap this was an opportunity. And so I went to my chair at the time, who was Dr. Kaufman, and he said, you know, I think you better go and talk to somebody in the School of Public Health. So he introduced me to, I think he was a cardiologist and an oncologist at the School of Public Health. And when I described the clinical situation there, they said, oh, well, you want to be a health services researcher. (laughs) And nobody actually knew what that was in dermatology, but that had existed both in cardiology and oncology for like 30 some odd years. So um, they knew exactly what it was that I was striving to do. And they told me that I would need additional training in order to learn that skill set.
1: So it was almost serendipitous that you ended up as a health services researcher and kind of built this career and niche in dermatology. Can you talk to us about The principles, probably the underlying principles that guided you along these steps?
2: I think it requires somebody to just kind of really know themselves to know what makes them passionate about a particular choice, right? We're met with many forks in the road, but really knowing yourself well enough to know it, This, this sounds pretty cool, pretty exciting. That other fork in the road, not so much. It's okay, but not so much. I think that that's definitely a guiding principle. I've been met with many forks in the road and definitely have done that. The other thing that I think is a super strong guiding principle is it's always family first. I think that there are many choices that people are faced with as they pursue a career, but if their family life isn't happy, then that's going to set up long-term for failure, actually, for unhappiness. So I think you have to really kind of marry the two principles, what's going to make you excited about waking up that morning and going to work, balanced with priorities, really, for what you define as your family.
1: Sure, sure. And speaking of family first, can you tell Dialogues listeners about your family, Dr. Chen?
2: Yes. So I am happily married to my husband, Ed Chen. He is actually the New chief of cardiothoracic surgery at Duke. So we came in together. And then I have two sons, and they are my pride and joy. I have an older one who is 18, and he's a freshman at Emory. And my younger one, Dylan, is 14, and he is a freshman in high
1: school. Both you and your husband have had incredibly successful careers in medicine, you being chair of dermatology and he being chief of cardiothoracic surgery. How have you? each been able to pursue your individual career goals while still maintaining that balanced family first life.
2: So this is another sort of principles. We had children kind of late, so we had means. And so this is something that I'm going to say, but not everybody, especially young trainees, might have the means to do so, but we outsource everything that we don't enjoy doing. (laughs) So we had somebody come and we not only had the people that came in twice a month to clean the house, but I had somebody who... When the kids were young, did my laundry, did the dishes, do food prep. I love to cook, so I actually wanted to do the cooking myself, but I don't enjoy washing all the vegetables and all that food prep type of stuff. So wherever you can outsource what you don't enjoy doing, I strongly recommend it. I, I Quite honestly, I think that the money that you pay up front for outsourcing, you'd have to pay later for therapy, for couples therapy, because it would be just such resentment. So I actually think that that's important. And, and that changes over time. You know, as my kids got older, when they were watching a football game, I would make them fold the clothes instead of having. Somebody else do it. So it it does change over time. But I think that early on, when there's the pressures of young children and budding careers and that sort of thing, again, whatever you can outsource that you don't enjoy, definitely do so.
1: In addition to that, are there any rules of the Chen household that listeners may find interesting?
2: So definitely no screens at the dinner table. We have family dinner. Every night, unless my husband gets caught up in the OR until really late, I plate a serving of vegetables to everybody's plate. And there's always fruit afterwards. (laughs) It used to be when they were young, there was no screen time at all until the weekends. That was super important. But quite honestly, schools have interfered with that because so much of it pre-COVID was digital anyway. A lot of homework assignments were on apps and whatnot. So it became much harder to monitor that. And just really strong expectations. So I think, luckily, Ed and I have very similar philosophies about what we expect our children to be like. So we don't have to work at being consistent. It's not as much of a stretch for us to being consistent. And once you lay down the law, once you say something, you have to stick to it. You know, it doesn't matter if you're suffering with a migraine. If you promised your kids something, you got to go through with it because you expect them to hold true to the expectations too.
1: Sure, sure. And did you have these conversations about principles before having kids, before marriage? When, when did you recognize that your principles aligned?
2: We were really fortunate, actually. This was not a no pre negotiations at all. <laughs> we were really, really lucky. But having said that, I mean, I know some people have an ability to go to prenuptial counseling and that kind of thing. And I, I think that if you have that available to you, that's super important. I, I've seen so many couples where they were not aligned. Even as something as basic as I want kids, right? <laughs> That's definitely a recipe for disaster. But having those principles, I think, you know, are super important to have. Like, are you going to share one a bank account? Are you going to have different bank accounts? You know, all those really not so fun things to talk about. I think are really important to be aligned with before you take that next step and you know expand your family.
1: And, you know, Dr. Shen, I often hear my female colleagues express admiration for everything that you have been able to accomplish as a female leader in dermatology. What would your advice be for aspiring female leaders in dermatology?
2: So one piece of advice that I have given, and it's not just to female colleagues either, it's to anybody, is to develop an ability to compartmentalize. I think that's really, really important to be able to do. So so compartmentalizing and then what I call swallowing the frog. So compartmentalizing, meaning that you set up your home life to be a certain way. So whether you put your kids in daycare or have a nanny or whatever, they are doing virtual schooling, right? Whatever is in place you need to set it up so that when you are focusing on work, you're not thinking about home. You can't be managing both at the same time and you can't be guilting yourself about not doing the other part of it. So similar to the other way around. So, you know, as a resident, you know, you're always thinking, I got all this reading to do, I've got journal club to prepare for, but you need downtime. You need to let your brain rest. You need to rejuvenate yourself. So there needs to be time in which you're focusing on yourself and not be worrying about all that other academic stuff that you could be doing, you know, for work, for charting, for anything work, the grants, the papers, you know, whatever it is in your professional life, you need to be able to put that in a box or a closet or whatever and close it and not think about it. That I think is hard to do quite honestly, if you haven't built that skill up. But I think it's really, really critical to do that if you're trying to juggle many different aspects of life. The other thing is the swallowing the frog, and that's not my terminology actually. Suzanne Albrecht taught me this one. And that is so easy to have either a written or mental list of all the things that you need to do. And it's so tempting because you can check off so many of them to check off easy boxes. But really every day before you start your day, you should identify, okay, this is the one thing I've been putting off because either I don't really like it, but I agree to do to it, or it's just so big and I need to be fresh and whatnot. And so you just need to carve out the time and the mental capacity and just get that one big thing, that frog, you need to get it done. And then you can go on to the easy
1: stuff. So it sounds like those two principles, developing an ability to compartmentalize and the ability to to swallow a frog or to check off that thing that you've been putting off has been really instrumental in your path. You've mentored so many people over the years, myself included. Who were some of your most important mentors?
2: My most important mentors? So I actually believe that everybody should craft a mentoring village. I think there are many people who have life experiences that would be really, really valuable, but in slightly different ways, right? And so I credit Ryan Kaufman. I mean, he opened a ton of doors for me. And looking at how he opened opportunities was very influential. He has an easy way about him in sort of gathering the team. And so that, I think, I've sort of adopted that approach. Bob Srelick, you know, our Current Emory chair is quite the contrarian, his own description. So, to really question, to step back and question what you realize is dogma, I think I admire him for doing that. He continues to do that. He frustrates many people and doesn't care. I love that about him. And I think, you know, I don't take it to quite the same extreme that he does, but I do question things, and that aligns with sort of, you know, why, how I'm built. Mary Spraker is a wonderful role model, quite honestly. She's one of the very few people that really dig into how I'm doing and making sure, not just superficial, but really wanting to make sure that I'm doing okay. So she's definitely a mentor of mine. Those are the main ones, I think, especially within the Emory family.
1: That's that's something we always loved uh, about you is that you you cared about uh, us as professionals, but always made sure to check in how we were doing as individuals too. And so sounds like your mentoring village has been has really shaped you and you are certainly part of my mentoring uh, village as well. Now you recently assumed the chair position at Duke, what have been the most challenging and the most rewarding parts of your transition?
2: So the Duke family is, is very similar to the Emory family. They are really super supportive of one another, really wanting to make sure that things go well. So that's something that I've really enjoyed. And, and so that has not been much of a leap at all. What's been really hard is the COVID restrictions, right? So I actually, although I've I had all these one-on-one meetings with all the faculty, and I'm going to work on the residents next. It's all been by Zoom. It's not been in person. And so that's definitely made things quite difficult. The structure at Duke is very different than Emory. It's very complicated. And I'm not saying that Emory is simple, but I grew up in the Emory system, so I understand it. So just trying to unpackage that structure at Duke is sort of a challenge right now. But quite honestly, I'm super excited to be where I am right now. I can build upon a lot of the lessons learned at Emory and draw upon those so that I can shape A department, the way that I want to go, they have invested a ton of resources and they have a lot of resources and infrastructure so that I can pursue health services, quite honestly. They are huge in health services and in a way that very few other institutions are. So that would be one thing that I would really, really want to grow here. And just a lot of things that were in its infancy at Emory, I think there's an ability to take it onto a national stage now that I'm chair at Duke.
1: Sure. Sure. And so you talked about growing the health services research portfolio. Can you tell us a bit more about your future aspirations? You've already accomplished so much, but what do you hope to accomplish moving forward?
2: I think two things are sort of in my two to five year timeframe, if you will. We, as you know, built quite a robust teledermatology service within the VA for the Vision 7 network incredibly efficient, high quality, building an infrastructure to ask some interesting questions. But we were never really able to take it outside the VA. But this is, at Duke, they actually really want to do that. So that would be... Fabulous! If I could build up a service very similar to what we have um, within VISN 7 in the Duke system, they're much more spread out than the Emory system. So like the VA, they have all these community-based outpatient clinics and whatnot. So I think it lends itself that way. And I think that building it as an educational effort to really engage residents and medical students and all sorts of learners to understand this new care paradigm is super important. Important for the future. We don't have enough of a workforce to match all the needs of our aging population. And so we have to be creative about access. And so this is one thing that I'm very committed to building. And the other one was something that we had started at Emory, and I'm hoping to continue. By the way, all these things that I'm talking about is not in isolation. We're Still collaborating the faculty at Emory and myself, and I'm hoping to bridge them to the faculty at Duke, also sort of expanding that network. And that includes the biobanking. So a lot of places have biobanking, but to really link it tightly with clinical phenotyping and patient-reported outcomes, which obviously is within my bailiwick, is something that I'm really excited to do. And so, and they have the infrastructure here. So I really would like to make that a reality in the next few years.
1: Outstanding. Well, Dr. Chen, you shared so many pearls with us today, from family first to outsourcing everything, to developing ability to compartmentalize, to, of course, swallowing the frog. Do you have any other advice to share with future dermatologists?
2: I think it's really to have fun, first of all. I think medicine, there's always a doom and gloom story out there. But I still think that fundamentally, the skin is such an important piece to patients and to really have some fun with that, not to lose sight of that. But I also really, and this is when medical students come and say, well, what are you looking for in a dermatology applicant? To find ways in giving back. To the community. And so that could be academics. I mean, but that's not for everybody. But it could be, you know, one of our graduates at Emory went to Afghanistan and was the dermatologist there for the longest time before it became unsafe for her to stay there. Another one set up a practice in Syracuse. There were really no other dermatologists of that caliber, that breath in Syracuse. And so he built a resource, you know, for patients. And so I think things like that really being able to figure out how to give back to dermatology, let alone your patients, um, I I think is something that people would derive a lot of satisfaction with.
1: Amazing. Well, on behalf of Dialogues listeners, I'd like to thank you for your time today, Dr. Chen. Your journey to date has been an inspiration to many, but seems far from being over. It's pioneers like you that have shaped dermatology for years to come, and we are fortunate to be able to learn from your example. Thanks again, Dr. Chen.
0: Thank you. This has been fun. To help us enhance future Titans of Dermatology episodes, please visit the description section of this podcast to access a short survey. We greatly appreciate your feedback. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app, New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.